Welcome to the Die Hard Minute, where Movies by Minute hosts talk about the 1988 John McTiernan-directed movie Die Hard, one minute at a time. I'm Rick from the Mad Max Minute Podcast. And I'm Julia, also from the Mad Max Minute Podcast. And today we are talking about Minute 101, which begins with Al asking John what he's talking about. And it ends with Al telling John exactly why he's okay behind a desk. It has been quite a while since we have been doing Die Hard stuff, hasn't it? It has. It's been a very long time. So much has happened Mm -hmm. since the last time that we checked in. When we recorded our first week of Die Hard content, we were still actively recording Mad Max to The Road Warrior. Now we have finished recording for The Road Warrior. We are in our hiatus. And so that's nice because we have time to record for Die Hard again. (laughs) I understand that the weeks for this movie were randomly assigned. And I think we had a lot of fun in the latter half of our first week that we were doing this, back when we were still getting to know Hans and Mr. Takagi. And and we had a little bit of dour content talking about Japanese internment camps and whatnot. And it just so happens that today we get to rub up against another really sensitive topic. And so we're going to address some things about the elephant in the room. We're not going to tackle it. It's not our place to get overtly political or try to understand all aspects of complicated subjects. We are here to talk about Die Hard. And so if the elephant in the room, which we all know what it is because we've all seen this movie and we are going to get into it. If it has to do with our characters, we are going to talk about it. If it's outside of the movie too much, we're going to not address that. So hopefully it won't get too sticky. Sticky like the bottom of John's feet right now because they are (laughs) bloody and full of glass. That's really gross. It is. It's also really painful. Mm -hmm. Last Friday, one of the final things that you heard in minute 100, was John asking Al about flat feet. And we start off this minute with Al down at the cruiser, and he's got his radio, and he says, what the hell are you talking about, man? And John is sitting in the bathroom where he's created his own little makeshift emergency room, more or less, and he's pulling glass out of his feet, and he says, something had to get you off the street. He's trying to distract himself from the fact that he's pulling large shards of glass out of the bottom of his feet by engaging Al in conversation. Yes, and it starts out working really well. Doesn't end up working so great, Mm -mm. which I feel really bad for John about because he's trying his hardest to get himself through a difficult situation, a very painful situation that he has to do anyways. He has to get this glass out of his feet so that he can continue on saving the day. And these are really big pieces of glass. Yes. This was not safety glass. He's pulling them out and he's holding them up. We can see the size of these shards and it is distressing to say the least (laughs) yes distressing is a good way to put it i was wondering about this whole idea of getting glass out of your feet and so i looked online in a couple of different places and i didn't get a ton of satisfactory sources and stories and whatnot but the general consensus i can find is that you can mix baking soda with water make it into a paste place it on the wound and it will draw out the glass and this is sort of for splinters as well so glass and wood splinters it'll soften the skin and get that shard out of there the caveat of that is that all of these examples mentioned leaving the paste on the wound for at least 30 minutes so it's really nothing that would help john in this scenario where he's actively hiding from the terrorists. He can't 
mix up a paste and put it on his foot and just sit there for half an hour while the terrorists are hunting him. Yeah. This is actually the same remedy that my mom used for my sister and I when we were little when we got bee stings. Mm -hmm. Which, in my memory, we got a lot of bee stings. I don't know why, though. We were always, like, playing in the woods and stuff, so that that would be why. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you made this paste. It was fun to like play with because it was a messy paste and you let it dry and let it flake off and fall off by itself and i guess it was supposed to draw out the stinger Makes at the time i never really knew what its purpose was mm. well hopefully it has some sort of antiseptic qualities and speaking of septic qualities one thing that really bothers me about die hard and this is not something that we really mentioned during our first week on the podcast but the fact that john is running around barefoot in these different environments when he's running around on the concrete unfinished floors on the construction level or on the roof it doesn't quite bother me as much as when he's running around on the linoleum floors on the computer lab floor or around the offices there's just something about human feet on linoleum that grosses me out i can sympathize with you a little bit it doesn't gross me out the way that it does you but i don't find the feeling of linoleum on my bare feet pleasing Mm -hmm. do you get that same grossed out feeling about tile and bare feet i think it's not so much the exact surface it's the environment in which people are barefoot The reason I get so grossed out about it is because I will go to conventions. I will go down to Boston for PAX East. I'll go over to Manchester for Granite Con and things like that. And I will see cosplayers. And their costume, for some reason, involves bare feet. And sometimes they're responsible. They will wear flip-flops. They will protect their feet from the floor. But other times, people will just walk around these big public areas bare feet. And I'm, like, so grossed out. I'm not saying I'm the anti-Tarantino that I have a hatred of feet or anything like that it's just you don't know when the last time they cleaned that floor is you don't know what people have spilled or dragged across it and it's just disgusting to me irrationally sometimes just so gross where i just want to shout at people put on some shoes which john would have done if he had you know kill the terrorist with bigger feet yes <laughs> i'm having a hard time being totally on board with the sympathy for john i definitely feel for him that he's picking glass out of his feet but he has started up this conversation with al mm. and he's kind of an asshole yeah john is trying to figure out why al chooses to spend his time on the job behind a desk. Al says, what's the matter? You don't think jockeying papers across a desk is a noble effort for a cop? And of course, John says no. But I completely agree that he's way off base because how is the DA supposed to get their job done if nothing is recorded? Paperwork is incredibly important to police work. It is. And there are plenty of different types of people who are good at different types of things. John is an action guy. Mm-hmm. He's good at the action stuff. He's good at swooping in and saving the day and gunning down the bad guys, not maneuvering them. That's what he's good at. Well, the, We also need people who are good at pushing papers and doing accounting stuff and all of the minute things that make the department as a whole run smoothly. Thinking about the movie The Other Guys. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was just about to mention it. (laughs) Yeah, and that movie, which is hilarious, highlights all the different jobs in a typical, stereotypical, I guess, New York precinct. Mm -hmm. Where there are traffic cops and there's accountants and there's detectives and all sorts of things that everything needs to get done 
or none of it's going to work. I think what I love most about that movie is the fact that Will Ferrell delights in the bureaucracy of police work. And Mark Wahlberg hates the bureaucracy of police work. One thing that I really like about Mark Wahlberg in that movie, though, is that, sure, he's demoted to crossing guard. But there are some of those times in that movie where he's out doing crossing guard work or directing traffic, and he's directing the hell out of that traffic. Oh, yeah, he discovers that he loves it and he is good at it. And he can find a peaceful life Mm -hmm. that he has a hard time finding elsewhere in being a traffic cop. Yeah. I think another thing I like about that movie is the fact that you have, I think it's Sam L. Jackson and Dwayne Johnson who are the action cops. Oh, yeah. They're they're John McClane. And they jump off a roof. Yeah. Really early in the movie. It's so early, it's not even a spoiler. No. It's like the first... Well, it's definitely the first scene, like the first five minutes, they die. Yeah, they because they do something big and heroic. Right, which is what should happen to John McClane over and over again. So many times over. (laughs) But I love in that movie how they show that pushing papers across a desk can be a noble effort for a cop. Absolutely. But at the same time, it still rings true that John is not a desk cop and he does not respect those guys that stay in the precinct all the time. Yeah. I'm okay with him being the action type cop. That's cool. And that's great. And we need those kinds. It's the fact that he doesn't respect other types of cops. Yeah. That really bums me out. Like whether you're a desk cop or a beat cop or a detective or you work with the district attorney or anything like that, you're all cops. You're all on the same side. There's no need to belittle another department. Yeah. So after John expresses that he's not satisfied with paperwork cops, we cut back down to Al, who's standing next to his cruiser, and he's got his radio in his hand, and he's considering what he's going to say. He's making a judgment call here, and he picks up his radio, and he says, I had an accident. And over the radio, you hear John McClane say, the way you drive, I can see why. What did you do? And we cut back up to the bathroom, and he says, you run over your captain's foot with your car? He's Keeping it light. He wants a distraction. He doesn't want something heavy. Right. And Al tries to... He doesn't really try and change the subject. Mm -hmm. He just... He's trying not to move the subject forward. Yeah. That maybe John will take a different tangent, go off in some other direction so that Al doesn't have to explain. Because Al knows what John's doing. Does he know? Does he know that John is picking glass out of his foot right now? That I'm not sure of. Yeah. So maybe Al doesn't know that John is just trying to distract himself. Huh. Anyways, Al is not helping to move the conversation along. Right. He's just kind of engaging and answering instead of bringing up a new subject. And maybe the use of the word accident might have been leading John in another direction. Because you hear the word accident, like, oh, I had an accident on the way to work. You think, oh, fender bender. You don't think, you know, drove through a elementary school playground. Right. You know, you automatically think vehicular-based incident. And considering that Al had a crazy backwards drive peel out over a wall thing it makes sense that john would jump to that but once again we see al down there by the radio and he's hearing this suggestion and he thinks about it for a while and then he picks up that radio and says i shot a kid and the pain on al's face as he's saying it out loud because i'm sure he's had to deal with this situation a lot in his personal life in consideration of keeping his career how to move forward from that he's probably had to confront that 
in many different situations. There's also a decent chance that he's not allowed to talk about it. Mm -hmm. It might be like a closed case. Yes. But I like that he's not going to continue to sugarcoat it or brush it aside or use other euphemisms. You know, John more or less asked, and then he made an assumption, and Al's like, no, I need to correct him. I need to make sure that he understands where I'm coming from. And honesty breeds honesty. It could have been really easy for Al to lie to John Mm -hmm. and say, yeah, I had a car accident. I rear-ended the wrong person and landed my butt at a desk. That would have been really easy, totally believable, very innocuous way to get stuck behind a desk. But Al chooses to be honest. They have been building a rapport Mm -hmm. and... They still have things that they need to accomplish. So that trust needs to continue to build. And Al realizes this, that it's not worth lying to John, that they need to keep a trusting relationship. Yeah. And he doesn't just admit what happened. He goes on. He was 13 years old. It was dark. I couldn't see him. He had a ray gun. It looked real enough. It's a situation that when it comes up, It's the elephant in the room. It's the thing that everybody knows is there, that nobody wants to talk about it. And I have a really hard time thinking about it because every time you have one of these situations, like according to a December 2016 story by the Washington Post, 86 people were killed by police between 2015 and 2016. Those people were carrying what amount to toy guns. Not all of these were children. The oldest one was like a 77-year-old man from Pennsylvania. The main issue is that these guns were essentially toys, pellet, airsoft, BB Things that are not lethal, but they're more or less indistinguishable from firearms. So that when you're 10, 15 feet away, if a suspect is holding one of those, it looks like he's holding a real firearm. And policemen are not in the line of work where they go out to be shot. They need to self-preserve so that they can continue to serve the community. But it's also really rough when something like this happens where someone is shot. I don't want to say undeservingly, but mistakenly. I think that's a good word for it. That things are happening too quickly, that cooler judgment is not prevailing, that things are being escalated by situation or environment. And I feel like a lot of the times nowadays we see a lot of perspectives from the victims and their families, and we don't see a lot of perspective from the police because the police, and this is just my opinion, it's not fact, but they seem to close ranks around those police officers. But you get the sense from Al that this was really traumatizing for him. Absolutely. He makes a comment that the Academy doesn't teach cops how to deal with stuff like this. And my thought was they absolutely should. They should teach cops how to deal psychologically with their jobs in general. This is an extreme case where he Mm. shot a child mistakenly. But there's also lots of other things that cops do that could affect them psychologically. They need to be prepared for that. They need to be able to, after they've made a decision that didn't turn out so great, they may have to continue making decisions. Mm -hmm. They need to be able to continue making right decisions to not let one poor decision influence the next and the next and the next until it just snowballs and you have a complete disaster on your hands. They need to say, oh, okay, that was a mistake. The next decision I have to make, what is the correct decision? They need to be able to move on quickly. Yeah. In situations especially like this, decisions are coming at you very fast. And 
cops are human. Mm -hmm. And that human element, nobody's ever going to 100% make all of the correct decisions. And whether those wrong decisions are big or small or justified or not, they're going to happen. Yeah. We can't prevent them. I was unable to find any firsthand examples of this because when you go online and you search for, you know, police forums, they're usually private. You have to ask to join and then provide, okay, I'm a police officer from this precinct in this city. I want to join this thing. And then they'll say, oh, well, okay, you're a cop. Come in. They don't let people just mosey on in. But the college that I work at has a police academy and a sheriff's academy, and they are coming in to train new police officers for the towns and cities in the area and correctional officers for the local prisons and whatnot. And something that I've been able to see over the span of time that the police academy has been there is that the training process for police officers in these academies is incredibly rigorous, talking about at least 16 to 24 weeks, eight hours a day, intense physical and mental training. But amidst all of that daily physical therapy and learning laws and procedures, they are also adding in things about de-escalation and working with the public and being a public face for the police. And I'd like to think that as we continue to be a bigger and bigger social media society, that the stigmas about being a big, tough, macho cop guy and not having feelings and things like that are starting to break away so that there are more of those supports in place for police officers so that they don't have to feel like less of a police officer because they need help getting over a situation. You have yeah. fewer and fewer John McClane's and more and more Al Powell's that are dealing with their personal trauma because... This is a personal trauma for Al. Yes, it was traumatic for the kid and for the family of the kid, but it was also traumatic for him, and he's working through that to become productive again, just like everybody needs to do when bad things happen in their lives. And I think it's good for him that he's trying to do his best to help the city of Los Angeles still. And he realizes in his current state that the best he can do is push paperwork. Mm -hmm. And Al realizes that that is still a valuable service while John does not. Mm -hmm. But in this specific situation, I don't really care about John. Yeah. I care about Al. <laughs> Al is capable of more. He is capable of being a street cop. Just not right now. Right now, he needs to be behind a desk. Yeah. So that as he heals and moves on emotionally, he feels he's doing so in a safe environment. Right. Which for him is behind a desk. Yeah. And it's very honorable of him to do that, to recognize that in order for him to serve the best way that he's making that judgment call, that he's not letting other people guilt him into doing other stuff. Right. There is, you mentioned the, the machismo of the stereotypical cop, especially in the big cities. So the influence of that machismo might pull Al back to being a street cop when he's not ready, saying, oh, I can still do this. I can still pull my gun on a regular basis and stop crimes and serve people and protect people you know, before he's ready. And he's not letting them do that. Mm -hmm. He is making his own decisions. Yep. And I think that's very healthy of him. And he says so to John. He says, anyway, I just couldn't bring myself to draw my gun on anybody again. And I appreciate that he's self-aware. Yes. I have a question. So we're making a pretty big deal about him being a desk cop. Mm -hmm. um, what was he doing out that night then? It's Christmas Eve. 
he's covering for someone else so that they can be home with their family. Ah, that was in the movie. Well, obviously, it was. Yeah. And I didn't catch it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's what happens when I'm not the one analyzing minute by minute the entire movie. Yeah. <laughs> to get off of the heavy subject of police and accidental misfiring and stuff, I found an article from Crack.com. This was written way back in May 2016 by a guy named Michael Garawi. You can go on Crack.com and still find the article. And he wrote this article about Reginald Val Johnson playing these cop characters. And he thinks that there's a connection between several different movies. And so he starts off in 1984's Ghostbusters. For any listeners, if other hosts have already gone over this, I apologize. I haven't had the opportunity to listen to the weeks leading up to this. But we start off in 1984 New York with Ghostbusters. Al Powell is the mild-mannered cop working in the precinct where the Ghostbusters are being held. He is there with the Ghostbusters, and when the mayor calls for these scientists, he's the one that shows up and says, hey, the mayor wants to talk to you. And so he starts off with this bedrock of experiencing just a crazy paranormal explosion in the city. It's extremely odd. It's not something that any normal person ever sees. And so in the midst of all that, he's hanging out in the jail. The Ghostbusters are there. And he overhears Egon talk about this theory of New York being like a Twinkie. And that begins the connection of Twinkies. Okay, so Al accompanies the Ghostbusters to the mayor's office, and the article continues. Since Al Powell is already at the mayor's office when the Ghostbusters say they need an escort to Central Park West, he would also be at the scene when Gozer comes back in the form of a 100-foot-tall marshmallow man, and in the span of a day, Powell has come to learn definitively that there's an afterlife, and it's not necessarily a pleasant one, and also that demonic trans-dimensional gymnasts could at any moment cross into our reality and kill us all in the most comical way that Dan Aykroyd can think of. It's more than a normal person is expected to deal with. So, Al moves to L.A., starts eating a lot of Twinkies. Does this article mention Chicago at all? Oh, I'm getting to that. Okay, good, because that's the best part. Yeah. So he moves to L.A., he starts eating a lot of Twinkies, even though he says they're for his wife and whatnot. But... As the article says, later in the film, he demonstrates an encyclopedic knowledge of the ingredients inside a Twinkie when he rattles them off after McLean makes an offhand remark wondering what's in them that demonstrates that Powell is intimately familiar with the Twinkie. He's memorized the list of ingredients. How many Twinkies would a man need to eat before he managed to memorize the ingredients down to polysorbate 60? Probably a lot. Huh. In fact, when we see Al Powell in Die Hard 2, because he has a little cameo, he's still eating Twinkies. So his experience with the Ghostbusters tied it over. So him eating all of these Twinkies, the author says, is him unconsciously trying to prevent some sort of paranormal catastrophe by eating as many as he can. He's made a psychological link between Twinkies and ghosts in New York. So Al is shaken by this experience in New York, and somewhere along the way, he ends up shooting a child in the line of duty. It's something that further damages his psyche, gets him put behind the desk, and so that psychological damage is where the wife comes from. He's not actually married. He just thinks he is because of psychological damage. This is going weird. I'm just, it's going to get weirder. Okay. Yeah. The article says you can clearly see Powell's hands in the video where he's buying the Twinkie and he's not wearing a wedding ring on either hand. And when Deputy Police Chief Dwayne T. Robinson is trying to get Powell off the scene, Powell claims that you could not drag him away. Now, you would think a man with a wife and a child on the way would have more to lose and want to be with them on Christmas Eve. You would think. 
So up until the end of Die Hard, Al's been able to keep it together as well as can be expected. But in the middle of all of that, Carl busts out of the building and Al shoots him with his service revolver. And John has to reach over and move the gun into an upward position so that Al doesn't shoot someone else. This experience here, Al is not ready for it. And so it psychologically damages him enough that, as the article states, he's unable to find peace on either coast, so Sergeant Al Powell recedes deeper into his own mind and creates a safe place in between his two tragic events. He imagines himself as a family man in Chicago, still a cop, but one where his duties never interfere with a solid, loving home life. And not just a pregnant wife, either. Here he has a wife, three kids, a sister-in-law, and his mother all surrounding him to give him support whenever and for whatever he needs. He's a family man dealing with family matters. He's not Al Powell. He's Carl Winslow, a man never attacked by terrorists or the spirits of the undead. So Powell's overwhelming guilt at having shot another person, namely Carl, and the implication of what it means for his victims in the afterlife caused Powell to become a new Carl in his own mind, someone who can live out a peaceful, happy life. That's why whenever you see him in Family Matters, he's wearing the wedding ring. However, there is an element of this fantasy world in his mind that is the manifestation of his guilt. And that thing is called Steve Urkel, which is why Urkel is constantly driving Carl insane. The article continues... Urkel has no appeal whatsoever. He's abrasive and annoying, his voice is jarring, and he inexplicably drags Carl Winslow along on a series of more and more preposterous events as the series progresses. But why? Because Urkel is a manifestation of Al Powell's guilt, his own personal devil. Urkel is the boy Powell shot, come back in the most obnoxious form possible, and completely impossible to get rid of. He haunts Carl because he's literally an angry spirit, which we already know is possible because this is the same universe as Ghostbusters. Wow, that makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. I'm a little disappointed they didn't mention Perfect Strangers, though. (laughs) Perfect Strangers is the show that Carl Winslow first appeared on as a cop and Family Matters was a spinoff of. Mm -hmm. So perhaps Carl Winslow, in addition to imagining... This whole family also imagines friends that he interacts with from time to time. Mm-hmm. In Balky and Larry, the two perfect strangers, he has a camaraderie and a friendship with them that is a little playfully hostile, mm-hmm. very sitcom-y. So I guess they're imagined too. And also that theory would explain, wasn't there a Winslow daughter that just disappeared between seasons? Pretty sure there is. Between like season two and three, there was the youngest daughter. They just stopped having her on the show. Yeah. So that would explain that. Hmm. Maybe that was a progression forward in his mental illness. Perhaps, perhaps. That a piece of it disappeared. Hmm. Of course, we never see him make any more progress forward. So Hmm. anyways, I like it. Yeah, it's a good read. If you go back and read the entire article, it's much better than me trying to relay it through a podcast. (laughs) We end this minute with Al just standing silent with his radio against the police car. And we're going to get John's response to getting all of this information tomorrow. It's going to start us off. And so we'll pick up with this situation when we get to that point. If you would like to hear more of us, you can find the Mad Max Minute podcast on our homepage, madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. The Die Hard Minute podcast is a collaboration of Movies by Minute podcasters. Find out more about the Movies by Minute format at moviesbyminutes.com. 
Die Hard Minute is produced by Jim O'Kane. Our intro music is by John Stebby. Our closing theme is by Tom Geyer. You can follow Die Hard Minute on Twitter at Die Hard Minute, on Facebook at Die Hard with a Podcast Listener's Limo, and at DieHardMinute.com. Subscribe to this podcast by searching Die Hard Minute on iTunes and Google Play. And until next time... What the hell are you talking about, man? Tell me you got that. I got it, I got it. Hit your heart on Channel 5.